Welcome to the Gem of All Mechanisms podcast, where we interview those in the know from academics and computer scientists to policymakers, philosophers and more about the effects of 21st century tech on us all. BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT, supports people who work in the industry and wants to make IT good for the whole of society by shaping policy, influencing change and raising educational standards. This morning I'm speaking to Rupert McNeil, the government or, or civil services government. Uh, okay, government's chief people officer. So Rupert, thanks for speaking to us this morning. Uh, first of all, I'd like you to, to ask you, what does the government's chief people officer do? So, Brian, one of the really interesting things that's happened across uh, the civil service and uh, UK government more generally over the past decade has been what Many of uh, the listeners here will have uh, seen in large global corporates, which is moving from essentially a divisional structure, in our case divisions of government departments, Mm. to a matrix structure where you have uh, the business lines, the departments, DWP, HMRC, etc., Department for Education and Health, uh, and then you've also got uh, the functions. Uh, finance, commercial, technology, of course, which at 15,000 people is one of the largest in government. Mm-hmm. Um, mine, of uh, human resources, is a bit smaller. Uh, we have about uh, four and a half, five thousand 5,000 people who will be considered part of the human resources function right. in government, about the same as you'd expect, you know, around 1% of our, um, of our organisation. What's interesting, of course, is that um, as well as that functional uh, change. We've also the civil service is really a sector. It's an industry, yeah. um, organisation of organisations of organisations. In fact, um, and it has some other characteristics. It's actually uh, very much a, a people business with uh, and a knowledge business. Uh, so it has a lot of parallels actually to professional services firms for yeah. for, for those of uh, those listening who are familiar with that. Um, so what's my job? My job is really to make sure that the the input of individual capability is there to deliver government's requirements. And I look at organisations with a, a pretty simple structure, with a pretty simple framework, which is that every organisation has a purpose. Mm. Uh, the purpose of government is to serve the citizens of the UK, protect them, deliver services. Different parts of that of, of that structure have different purposes. For example, whether it's collecting taxes or paying benefits, for example, uh, or uh, defending the realm. Mm. And, and then every organisation that has a purpose then has a strategy for fulfilling that purpose. And uh, we have a very wide range of uh, of different organisations with different strategies. So DWP and HMRC provide their services uh, or do their activities directly with the citizen. Others do it through intermediary organisations like um, the NHS for health uh, or the uh, school system for education. And then there is an operating model uh, underpinning that uh, that strategy that reflects those different ways of doing things, uh, and that operating model will have a number of inputs. It will have the uh, the input of money, the input of people, 
technology and data. Mm. Now, the increasingly interesting thing in all organisations globally is that those inputs are very intertwined, and yeah. I'm sure we're going to be talking about that. It's very hard to talk about the capability to run an operating model without talking about how those things all interact uh, and support each other. Yeah. And of course, around all that, you then got the organisational culture in which all this sits. And we're very lucky in the civil service to have such a, a common purpose serving citizens of the UK, governments of the day, and you know, everything really flows uh, flows from that. Mm. Now, I, I can look at things in terms of you know what we need now, sort of in the immediate uh, in the immediate term. We've just come out of a very interesting period with the, the activity around leaving the European Union, mm. uh, where we're sort of moving through the last stages of that. That actually, for us, was a great accelerator. It allowed us to do many things which further accelerated this uh, functional model, whether it's in HR or in commercial and other places, uh, moving people between government. About 2,000 people moved between departments to support various bits of uh, various bits of activity. Now, what? but equally, we need to be thinking about what the uh, UK government and UK citizens will need in 10, 20, mm. and 30 years' time. Mm. So, you know, what is the what type of people do we need to deal with the cyber environment, uh, with uh, climate change, with automation particularly. So uh, it's really making sure that we've got the pipelines and the processes to provide civil service organisations with the right capability. That's the long answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fine. Now, you you were talking about moving a few thousand people around there. Uh, Was that a bit of a test of the resilience of your... HR system. Yeah, it was a very well. It was interesting. It was. A, it was. You know, all all these things. You know, an, an operational challenge like that is a great opportunity to test systems. Yeah. We'd actually put in place. I think all functions found this, whether it was commercial or finance or others. All functions and technology actually. I mean, amazing work done by the uh, government digital service in as part of this process, particularly yeah. around data. You know, really testing what the system was actually capable of, and right. I think it exceeded what people had traditionally seen it do. And, uh, you know, one of my high points, actually, uh, last year was uh, a great minister in one department saying, you know, I've just had 100 people arrive from this other department, and they're great. (laughs) And that's not something which ever would have happened. You you wouldn't have 100 people moving from one department to another. Uh, And that really reflects something that I've been very, I mean, I'm only a servant of uh, sort of four and a half years, and I've just been amazed by the the agility of such a large system. Right. But that's actually the, the, the great joy of this job and, and any functional leader's job in government, which is you're sort of, as I said, sitting on top of the sector or industry. And I can't really think of another place, another sector or industry in the world where you could get 200 leaders in a room and mm. all agree we're going to go in this direction. Right. So when it comes to things like what we want to do on data, what we want to do on our technology investments, we can act with um, uh, something of a hive mind. Right. So you're going to speak to us about uh, HR automation at at our major event, uh, which we'll come on to in a minute. But just before we get there, just a a question about you, really. I think we can almost view this as maybe the biggest HR role in the country. How did you get to this point? What what led you up to this? Yeah, well, I should I should I should give credit to my colleague in the in the NHS because they have more people. I think we have more diversity and more (laughs) organisations. But uh, that's a that's a great, uh, a great people organisation. Call it joint first. Joint first, joint first. Yeah. Um, so 
I, uh, look, I, I, I love this job. I'm extremely privileged to get it. And when the, uh, the, the headhunter called up, I think, to see if they'd get a, uh, this was in, uh, back in 2015, I think they just thought I'd give them some names to, uh, to call up for it. And I just know oh, that's my dream job. I'll right. apply. No, it's been great. And it's, it's a, you know, from my first, uh, my first job, which was in the CBI, uh, then going into professional services for 10 years, which has been, a, I mean, in a way, one thing I sort of feel about this role is that I'm sort of, leading professional services organisations supporting government in the area of HR. That's well, one, it has characteristics of that. And then coming into the corporate world uh, in financial services. And I think the the thing which is which this has in common with the organisations I've worked in in the corporate sector is it's very complicated. It has a strange characteristic that things happen both very quickly and very slowly. There are sort of uh, high frequency, you know, short wavelength things, and then there are lower frequency things and uh, and longer wavelengths so, so you sort of that great combination and the people who I think tend to do tend to find it easiest to adjust coming into uh, government roles uh, probably at this level are people who've worked in large complex organisations whether right. it's in the, with multiple stakeholders and interests the other thing is that uh, it's there's a lot of back, back to my first point. There's a lot of stuff about the te- about the way in which the people agenda and the technology agenda, the financial and data agendas all intertwine. Yeah. So, so that's the uh, yeah, that's one of the one of the things which I think is very distinctive, not just for me but also for other for other functions as well. So it's been you know, it's a great uh, it's, a, it's a great place to be. So a lot of those functions actually do come together with the idea of HR automation, don't they? Now, what do people need to know about that? What, why are you a bit of a cheerleader for HR automation? Yeah, so really interesting, Brian. So I think for multiple multiple reasons. I think the first is that we're, we're at a, an absolutely fantastic point for us as a function, similar to, the, to where other functions have probably been a bit earlier than, than, than us, like uh, maybe you could say finance, which is that the, the, the lots of solutions to problems of quality control, speed, cost effectiveness are resolved by moving to the cloud. So the person at the moment, both in finance systems and my, the other half of my job is Director General of Shared Services in government, is we are moving our internal transactions to the cloud. Mm. Uh, and it's it's a sort of seven to ten year journey. It's a complicated journey. It requires uh, a lot of process design consistency yeah. and increasingly a shared architectural vision. I think that's the really mm. interesting thing. And sort of an idea about where we will, what we're trying to converge on. So we have in HR, for example, a whole series of user journeys based on the uh, the functionality that exists natively in these cloud ERP systems. Right. We we have three big ones in in government: um, SAP, Oracle, and Workday. But actually, between them, the process models are pretty similar, um, and that then allows us to talk about data consistency. How we then put in place some of the analytical tools to uh, to look at the data that's being generated by that. And of course, the thing about cloud computing in the context of, uh, of ERPs and internal transactions, or any transaction, is that you know, it's much easier to look at things in real time. So if I take an example, you know, the old uh, check is in the post type uh, issue uh, would be, uh, why haven't my expenses been cleared? Oh, it's in the system. Well, no, with cloud, going like, for example, for our graduates in uh, the fast stream, I can go and find out on workday which person hasn't clicked approve? Right. So that's a you know that, that that's yeah. a, I mean, it's a, a slightly prosaic example, but that's a type of uh, cha- that's quite a fundamental change. So so I think that's a, that's something that we're very we're very passionate about. And I take it to another level. One of the thing one of the characteristics about 
the key HR processes. And by the way, HR processes are different from other functional processes, I very strongly believe, because to uh, to quote Immanuel Kant, or paraphrase him, you know, people are ends in themselves and not means, not mm. just means to mm. ends. And so um, unlike other activities, activities involving people like recruitment and moving people around and paying them, involve you know human beings and their lives and uh, that has a particular character so you know it might it's not a good thing to have a problem in your purchase ledger system but uh, and have a payment problem there but the problem for a uh, an individual who doesn't get paid on a particular day is that they might not be able to make their mortgage payments yeah. so that's a really important thing yeah. and actually that's the characteristic between HR systems and finance systems which is HR systems are b2c systems as opposed to B2B systems, and, mm. and they have a different a different character as a result of that. So, so what's what's happened there as well is that we've started to look at the effectiveness of recruitment processes, particularly, and it, it's a very sweeping statement. But one should be very sceptical any selection process in which human beings are involved, <laughs> if you set the criteria. So. Uh, and, and actually, the technology provides a really good way of controlling and mitigating some of the natural bias that, that always yeah. comes into selection processes, yeah. whether it's masking the CVs that people are checking, uh, whether it's uh, so that they're, they're not inferring things that they shouldn't infer from the data they're getting. Because mm. really, and this is the other great thing about uh, about the civil service, is or another great thing, is that in law, uh, we have to recruit fairly on merit and openly. Yes. So, uh, and we're regulated by the civil service commissioners who do a great job. So, we need to um, basically, we're, we're always being held to you know, sharply to account right. for how good our processes are. Yeah. And we found, for example, in our fast stream that a few years ago, uh, just when I joined, we completed a review that said that our the, the fast stream was less diverse than Oxbridge on social economic background. Right. Now that actually, again, never wastes a challenge like that, prompted us to do many different things. We put a recruitment centre in Newcastle, we changed the whole process of recruitment, and of course the numbers have changed. We still have a lot, uh, we have a, a lot further to go on that, but that's a, a good example of the way the technology doesn't just make the process more efficient, but it actually also gets you better outcomes. And do you have um, particular ways of approaching trying to get neurodiverse people in, into the civil service as well? Yeah, well, it's, I think this is one of the most exciting changes that's happening in society. Actually, I've got uh, I've got two kids uh, who are great. Uh, they're they're very very good in their fields. Uh, both have different forms of neuro uh, neurodiversity. Okay. In fact, uh, I get quite a lot of uh, dismissive comments about being a Generation Xer. Uh, neurotypical. <laughs> so what, what what I think has happened is that there's a general acceptance or realisation that diversity in all its forms is good for improved decision making. Yeah. And it's good for, uh, and particularly diversity of thought, cognitive diversity. Now what is interesting is that also I think we're getting to a point where people are recognising that there are some jobs that are better done by certain neurotypes absolutely Uh, and in fact i'd rather say it's a world of multiple neurotypes than it's neurotypical or Mm. non-neurotypical i'm not sure what the normal is it's a bit like you know what's the average and i think the the neurotypes 
you know, we have certain parts of certain parts of government which uh, act- are actively recruiting for uh, people on the autism spectrum right. because of, this, of, of the particular way of looking at things that, that they that they bring. Does that tend to be IT oriented? Uh, well, it's interesting. I, I think that's that's actually what I thought. It, it, it does tend to be because the environments they're working in happen to be very technological environments, mm. but actually, it's also uh, environments which involve very high level analysis of data right and uh, and I actually think that we should will find more and more areas which are which are like that mm. and 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 finding the right sort of balance of and, and this I think is my this would be my nirvana which is you go into your career at an early stage you know my daughter for example has been um, you know she, her Outlook, her neurotype has only recently been identified, and she's uh, she's eighteen. So she's going to go into the workplace knowing what she's likely to be good at, right. very good at, yeah. uh, and not so good at. And that will, uh, and then the, the challenge really is for workplaces to identify the sort of the fit for those people. Yeah. Where, where, where's where's the best place to go? If I take that uh, take that example as well, actually, on in, particularly on people on the autism spectrum. Uh, we've got uh, internships focused particularly on people with that neurotype, and uh, that's also very uh, that's very successful. But I think we're in the really early foothills of this, and mm. it's a for the productivity of the UK for how we think about working life. This is really interesting. The problem, but if I sort of look at the other side of it, is that we know that one of the other things that we're starting to think about much more intelligently is not just the people in the workplace, but the workplace itself. So to take a fact I've learned in the past few uh, few months, the oxygen level in a room at the end of the day could be uh, at a level which means that the decisions are worse than they would have been at the start of the day. Okay. Now, in modern air conditioning systems, there is a there are, there are mechanisms to make sure that doesn't happen. But that's just an interesting example mm. about how all of us are affected by the conditions uh, around us. Now... We're going to be, you know, over the next 50 years in an environment where recognising the environments which make different neurotypes work most effectively. Yeah. You know, the, the lighting, the, uh, temperature. Um, the temperature, absolutely, <laughs> uh, the the level of noise and colour on the walls. Mm. Um, one thing which we've been talking about is, well, actually, you know, there's a, there are people who are on the autism spectrum who want a very low, let's call it, noise environment. Mm. And there are people who might be... Um, Later in their careers, who are having symptoms of uh, of Alzheimer's, who actually need more visual cues. So we're going to have some interesting questions yeah. about what the workplace looks like as yeah. well. And this is why HR and the people area is is so fascinating. So interesting, yeah. Do you, do you take into account uh, the neurodiverse issues when it comes to interview uh, approaches? Yeah, we do. Uh, it's a great question, and I think that's we we've done a lot of work uh, on changing our uh, our testing mm. we've actually brought a lot more of it in-house um, we do uh, much more online and video interviewing right uh, that's generally the case that I mean video interviewing as you know Brian is, is more about you record the answer to questions and they're analyzed rather it's not live but that's uh, that's an area where I th- we certainly find it's easier for uh, mm. for people who um, are on the autism spectrum particularly you know non-neurotypical people to, to do that but that's that applies actually to all forms of a disability as well, and again, it's back to that point about it's a, it's better, it's more objective, it's uh, easier to control for bias in those situations, yeah. and to get to you know what you're really looking for is what are the actual essential criteria for the person to be good at their job. That's what you're trying to check. Yeah. 
Do you do you find uh, that you're been successful in in the gender split uh, in technology? As you no doubt know, it's sort of been seventeen percent female representation for quite some time now. How does the service? Well, yeah. So so we so this is something that we're really uh, really keen to uh, keen to address across the whole piece of the whole sort of STEM area. Mm. Um, and I think the I mean I think the challenge is that you know, in the one hand it's hard to think of a job which. In, in government anyway, which doesn't require a STEM mindset. And uh, I actually, I was giving a speech uh, a few weeks ago in, in Sydney and I, I came across a phrase I'd never come across before, which says that I was, uh, how ignorant I was there. And this is STEAM. Right. So this is STEM with arts. So, you know, the rounded individual, which I like, I like that a lot. Yeah. So, so that's something that we need to really, really progress. And I think we've got some very good opportunities to do that. One is I'm very keen to focus on people who come back to the workplace. Right. That tends to be uh, women, which you know, hope over time that will not be the case. It's women returners we talk about. It should be you know, parental returners. Uh, we've also got so a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities there, and a lot of opportunities I think through uh, what's coming through T levels and through apprenticeship system. And I think mm. one of the great things about apprenticeships uh, is that the, the sort of the stereotype about it being well, that you wouldn't think of degree-level apprenticeships. So, yeah, those are actually really coming online fast, particularly in the technology area. So I think that's a really a, a really good opportunity. But you know, we know we can do uh, better on that, although you know, I'm delighted to say that uh, the CIO for my area, for, so supporting me in the Cabinet Office, uh, is a woman, and uh, the head of... Uh, the government digital service so these are you know that's a, mm. all, all good uh, good indicators yeah okay that's interesting I'm, I'm just going to go back to what you were saying earlier yeah. actually because I'm you know our audience is, is largely IT professionals you're, you're talking about a massive program there of moving things uh, to the cloud and you were talking about your user journeys you must have had a lot of user journeys to um, to assess and sort of put into place just wonder how you and it took that. That's a quite a big project. Yeah. Well, well so, so I think a good thing is that you, you, because of the way these sort of cloud-native ERP systems work, mm. you can sort of start with what you know Oracle Cloud or SAP SuccessFactors or Workday have. So you, you can sort of work work from that. It's been a very engaging process, um, and actually one of the interesting things back to you know in terms of how we approach this. So one thing I've learned that government is is you know government like any large organisation. Uh, makes mistakes and they're probably a bit more visible than in some other places yeah, yeah. because of transparency, which is a very good thing. But we've um, we definitely learn from them. I think that's actually a characteristic. I would say the past sort of three hundred years of British government is we learn from <laughs> our mistakes. And and one of the things which <clears throat> we found was that with other government moving between departments, so inter interdepartmental transfers in government is a big pain point because every right. so statutorily, as we currently stand. Every department is a separate employer. Uh, they had that they had their own ERP systems. They had their own payrolls. The payroll dates might not be the same. So there's a lot of friction in the system if you're moving yeah. from one place to another. You know, one of the, one of the good rules of doing any sort of uh, support function is you know find the points of pain and eliminate them and focus mm. on that. And, and that was a point of pain. Uh, our first approach was just to sort of say, okay, so we're going to converge the process, get the form to say, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, it sort of worked, but nowhere near what we wanted it to work. Right. If I would say it didn't, let's, let's, let me say, I don't think it worked. So so what we then did was we said, okay, so how do we just think about this in a different way? Let's go to the let's go back to our sort of user journey approach. So it's not the process that's a problem. It's 
to use a phrase I learned uh, a couple of years ago, which is a great phrase, uh, transactability is the issue. Right. Actually, how, you know, what, is actually, what is actually happening? Is it the, you know, where, where are the blockages occurring? And of course, the incentives in the system are interesting because the, the person who the person is employed by at the moment isn't hugely incentivized to help them to the hoop, you might say. Mm. Uh, and the person that they're going to is on a different system and has a lot of things to do. So the person who's got the incentive to make the system work is the person who's moving. So how do you put as much control, Mm, user control, in their hands? And that's what we've done. And we went live with that uh, in February this year, so last month. And that's been, fingers crossed, but we think that will will work and make a big big difference. And we've actually put the the forms for that onto public platform, which is gov.uk, because we know that all civil servants can access that, do the form. Now, the other thing is that that's an interim solution before we get to straight-through processing. And uh, our Nirvana, which we're looking at at the moment, uh, another part of Nirvana, uh, which is uh, I've got quite a few of those, is the um, is moving to a a single blockchain enabled employee ID. Mm. So our, our vision there is a the equivalent for, for HR purposes of a, a virtual wallet. Okay. Now that can that should have all your details in it. It should have your accreditations in it. It should be your password, it should let you into buildings, that's what that's what we'd like to get to. Why would you use blockchain as opposed to a, a sort of normal database? Well, that comes on to uh, the interesting questions about security mm. and about privacy of information. Yeah. And, you know, we're working there between the general principles of privacy, the very sensible provisions of GDPR and all those things. So um, we, we like the idea of, and we're in the very early days of thinking about this, so any listeners who've got ideas, welcome <laughs> to throw, throw them into us. You can make it uh, cheaper for the taxpayer. Is a the distributed ledger, which basically mm. means that you know you can you, you, you can trust it because you know where it comes from without actually having to uh, handle the data, perhaps in the way that you you would if it was just on a on a database. And, and there's a whole kind of layman on these things, but the you know thinking more intelligently about data and how we use it. You know, for example. Being even it's a bit like I said about recruitment. You know, the key thing is the essential criteria. What is the essential criteria that someone needs to access a system? For how long? At what level? Right. How do you design in obsolescence in a sense of data access yep. and things like that? And how do you protect people's privacy? I mean, we've got a real dilemma for us over. You know, there's lots of data that we'd like to gather, but some of which we want to gather it to change our culture and systems, particularly in diversity and inclusion areas. Yeah. Sexual orientation would be a good, uh, a good example, but also it applies to other areas like ethnicity and things like that. Uh, people might not want to say, and they may feel, although it isn't the case, that they'll be identified off the back of it. Mm. And they, they may have that because they think that we might not use the data correctly. I hope they wouldn't think that, but that, that might be one, one thing, the thought. Or that it might be compromised and other people could access it. Yeah. Uh, which is, a, you know, that's a, a, a real risk. And, you know, as we know, sadly, that type of thing happens. So valid concern. Valid concern. Yeah. So so I think there is a, that, that, that's the tension that we're managing. That's the tension that we're managing. Mm. And, but it's not any different from what our banks are doing or, no. or others. But it's a, it, it, it's, the, it's a, it's an absolutely fundamental issue about what data do you gather? How do you balance it? How do you protect it? Yeah, we think that's a, that sort of virtual wallet idea is a, a, a way of getting round some of those issues. Is it part of that, that idea of, of giving the user, um, making make the user the centre of that because it, it's their thing, it's, it's yeah, their record? Ab- absolutely. And I, and I think this is a general thing about uh, any process is 
getting people to be to have self-efficacy in the way they use their systems. Mm. Now, let's take an example. Is I mean, human resources a bit like well, finance has similar characteristics. We, you know, we're there to help, but we're a control function. We're there to protect other people yeah. in the organisation and the system itself. So, one of the things you need to have is you know a good real-time view of the organisation, and that might that might include that does include making sure that organisational charts roles are all up to date. Mm. Who's responsible for that? Personally, I think the line manager is responsible for that. It's part of your job as a line manager. You know, keep your keep your team safe and keep your data up to date. And so that's another example of you know resp- responsibility uh, and accountability. So I really like the I really like the idea that you know you. That's how I feel personally. You know, as much you have as much control over your data as uh, as possible, and as you uh, and as you as you need. And then there's also another issue, which is sort of data parsimony. You know, which is uh, do you need to have? Yeah, do you really need that data? Do you right. actually need it? Is, right. is, is, is to me is is also important. What, why, why are you asking that question? That's a GDPR thing, isn't it? GDPR I, again. I think that's why GDPR and this, there's a really healthy tension with that type of principle-based regulation, mm. and you know how do you operationalise that? And that's a particular issue for us in the technology area. I mean, um, Mark Thompson, who is our enterprise architect in the HR and finance space, a really uh, great professional and very uh, forward-thinking, and you know he. He came to me a few a few months ago and said, "Look, we're looking at these as we talk about the architecture. We've got these various solutions that are becoming available to us. We've got some decisions to take about which systems and which parts of systems talk to each other, right? Because we might not want that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's a good question. You know, yeah. Do I do I you know, why why, you know, why do you need to do that? Why does that need that bit of information need to be transferred uh, to there? Having said that." Across government, I would say, in my observation, that there is a huge dividend, a huge benefit to be reaped by getting much more shared data and more sort of straight through, you know, straight through processing, using the data in sensible ways. You know, HMRC data connected, DWP data connected to health data. All you know, all of that is there, but it all takes place within this debate about making sure that you handle it in the uh, in the appropriate way. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we're very keen on, we're doing a campaign at the moment called uh, Trust and, and Truth, and the fact that, mm. you know, for the public, or indeed anyone to trust IT systems specifically, mm. they've got to feel that ethics are being taken seriously. I just wonder what your views are on, on, on whistleblowing. So when somebody brings something or, or, or surfaces something, how do, you, how do you handle that? Yeah, so, so uh, I mean, I think whistleblowing is... I guess I was sort of first coming across it in uh, in the financial services context, mm. and uh, it's a very for me it's impossible to think of an organisation that is serious and effective without really good whistleblowing processes. What's happened for us is that, uh, and I'm the whistleblowing champion for government. Or, okay. You know, I'm the person I'm the person that the aggregates and puts out the report right. and, and thinks about where we can improve things uh, or, or makes recommendations. The thing with whistleblowing is that we're sort of evolving it a bit. So whistleblowing has a it's very important. It has all the statutory protections and it's essential, but it's not sufficient. It, whistleblowing is an ex, it, it sort of is absolutely the last resort. Yeah. So we, we sort of have a bit of a change in our internal, as, as other organisations have, internal positioning of this to speaking up. Right. And speaking up is never bad or wrong. And in fact, one of the um, there's a really uh, fantastic book 
uh, and I've posted an extract, which the author let me do on my LinkedIn profile, if you want to have a look at it, uh, a book called Beyond Engineering. Okay. He, he writes about high-reliability organisations. So this is places which you need to be reliable, like nuclear power stations or aircraft carriers. And he talks about an aircraft carrier. And one of the characteristics that he notes is uh, that in high-reliability organisations, everybody has the authority to stop the production line. So, you know, very Toyota-like in that respect. Mm. And, um, you know, there, there's there's a deferral to not just expertise, but, you know, the fact that that person might know something that someone else just can't Doesn't. see or yeah, isn't aware of. Yeah. So the idea of an environment which people feel free to speak up is hugely uh, hugely important. And in government, the, the publication of uh, the Chilcot Report is a really good example. And again, back to my point about you know government learns from things. Mm. The Chilcot Report is a good example. Definitely worth actually anybody in a large organisation having a look at the summary of that. Okay, thank you. You've handled some large projects in the last five years. What, what learnings would you like to share with the audience about how to... How to approach that sort of thing? Yeah, great, uh, great question. I, and I'm, gosh, I'm still learning. I, th- I think that my, I think I would never underestimate the power of uh, and the importance of good portfolio management. And it was quite early on in, in my start. So, so if I sort of give, give an example, back in uh, in, in uh, my corporate career, uh, on day one of a job, I found three big. IT-based programs, uh, I think for learning, recruitment and pensions, all going live on the same day. And I swore right. to myself, I would never let that ever happen again. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so having a really good, uh, having a good portfolio approach mm. and having good external challenge to that approach, but always having an end state architecture that you're getting to. So that's one thing. The other thing which is very, I've certainly felt over the past few years is Sometimes, I don't think this is true of technology professionals, by the way, I think it's more top leadership, perhaps, people like me, uh, or I'm sorry, top leadership, you know, people, the client, yes. uh, you know, wants to hold out for the perfect uh, solution. Yeah. Interim solutions are good, yeah. and you learn a lot from deploying them. So, uh, you know, just because you're saying, well, you know, we'll do this next year, we'll do this in three years' time, yeah. we'll actually maybe put in the interim solution, and if it requires a bit of ma- manual intervention, yeah, that's that's yeah. good. And the final, the final, the final thing is, which talking about manual intervention is, you know, again, look for those points of pain, and don't be, uh, you know, I don't like to sloganize, but you know, sometimes slogans are helpful. So one of the things we're thinking about in automation is you can talk about all the uh, the sexy stuff about you know cognitive technology and all that stuff, and, mm. but actually, uh, one of the interesting things is that most you know, large organisations like ours or sets of organisations. Um, there's a long tail of out- outmoded stuff that yeah. you want to sort of you want to shorten the tail. Yes, and yeah. uh, and so you know one of, the, one of the things we're thinking about and I'm promoting is wouldn't it be great just to say that no one is going to have to rekey anything in government after a certain date? Right. Now right. that that very question gets people to go and look and see how much rekeying is actually happening. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And every time you've got rekeying, you've automatically got a an RPA opportunity. Yeah. yeah. So you know, and they're cheap, and you can put them in there, and uh, you know, and then in due course, because every RPA opportunity is actually an opportunity to improve the process and yeah. remove the step that requires the RPA. So there's lots That's of an interesting questions. Yeah, lots yeah. of virtuous virtuous and pro- incremental progress can get you, um, you know, actually quite a long way very fast. That is really interesting, um, Rupert. Thank you ever so much for speaking to us today. We really enjoyed that. Thanks. Thanks. 
You have been listening to BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT's Gem of All Mechanisms podcast. For much more content, please visit bcs.org or follow us on social media.